Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. The names Dolly Levi, yes, Lorelai Lee, Carol Channing are I... synonymous, <laughs> one and the same. Hi, Carol. Oh, I never thought of that. <laughs> yes. When you say Dolly Levi, everybody thinks Carol Channing immediately. Lorelai do Lee. you? I oh, do. I... I think most people do. Don't I you? like to think that. <laughs> And now, Carol Channing in a new one-woman show called The First 80 Years Are the Hardest, uh, performing at Feinstein's at the Regency here in New York over the past oh, week or two. And I was trying to think how to start chatting with you today. And last night, when Howard and I went to see your show, you gave me the opening line. What when you that? open your act, you say... I'm always asked, how did you get started in show business? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I will ask you that question, and then you take it from there. How, how did you get started in show business? How did I get started? <laughs> well, I went to Bennington College. Right. And there, it's a progressive school. And, of course, it, it's, well, uh, you really want to know the, the real truth. Well, tr- basically, the, the way that you open the show is you tell how you got started, how yes, you went to Bennington you want and, that. and all that. In maybe a shortened version. <laughs> That's my problem. So uh, I, I will tell you one thing I didn't tell the audience. I was sitting on the right of Alfred Drake. Now, those, you have to be as old as I am to know who Alfred Drake well, was. Of course, he was, you know, big yes. star back in the 40s, 50s. Yes, <laughs> yes. And he was our big leading man in musicals. He was marvelous. And on my right were Comden and Green, and we were all warming the bench at William Morris' office. Uh-huh. And it was a mistake. The secretary to Abe Lasfogel, who was the president and organizer and builder of the William Morris agency, the secretary came out and said, you uh, come in. And Betty Comden said to me, she pointed at you. Well, I'm nearsighted. I said, no, she didn't. I didn't. I don't think so. She pointed at you, Betty. And Betty said, no, go on in. So I went on in. I had this little drum. I was from Bennington College, and you're supposed to go out and get a job at whatever you're majoring in Bennington during the winter period. So I went in, and Abe Lasfog, I'm trying to shorten it, and I'm making it longer. (laughs) Uh, It's, uh, uh, I went, and uh, I did for him the um, uh, Orestes funeral chant, which the girls at Bennington just loved. And he said he thought I should do someone better known than that, like Sophie Tucker, better known than Orestes. And then I did the Haitian corn grinding song that that I thought was quite beautiful. And uh, he looked amazed at that. He was chewing on his cigar. And he thought I should do someone more like Carmen Miranda. So I did. I went and, <laughs> you know, and then uh, finally I did for him... Uh, it, it was all uh, this, it, you know, it, what was it? Um, oh, um, it's, uh, I ran across it in my studies on Middle European cultures. It was Middle Europe, and it's like Hungarian, all that sort of thing. And uh, it was, and I was doing that, and he said, my, my, my 
mother used to sing songs like that to me when I was a little boy, and he joined me on it. It's Romania, 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 and the fiddles take over the violins. Da moleki Romania nichtier, Romania de gut Romania, gwen la mola 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 kind of land is easy it yachenia, and we sang it as if we were homesick for Romania. Now, what what what, what year was this? Uh, 42. 42. This is before Alfred Drake was in Oklahoma. He was not... Not yet. Not, not yet Curly. But not yet Curly in Oklahoma. That's right. But he was looking for a job. So were Comden and Green. And they so were down you. at the Village Vanguard at the time. Uh-huh. And uh, is that still here, do you think? I don't know. I haven't thought of that in years. And it would have been about two years before they had... Uh, on the town. I used to go there between tri- Broadway shows. I'd get smaller parts in Broadway shows. And finally I got a part, um, uh, oh, understudying Eve Arden in Danny Kaye's Let's Face It. Mm. I have to ask, this: the story you told last night and, and that we just heard in synopsis now about your, your first audition, you'd been studying theater and dra- or drama and dance, as you said last night. Yes. Um did you really come to New York so naive as to walk into the William Morris Agency and yes. sing folk songs? You do at 18 years old. You think you, I just walked in and said, may I speak with the president? <laughs> and and, and the, they, I had such authority about it, they just ushered me on up there. And he really did. He sent me to Mark Blitzstein, who was writing modern American operas. The Cradle Will Rock. This is way back. Nobody's alive now that, that ever remembers Mark Blitzstein. Well, that, well, I think people do remember Mark Blitzstein, so I want to ask you. You're sent to this major, serious composer of work that was sort of opera, sort of Broadway. Did you just – you were sent to him? You went to audition for anything specific? Or? You know all about him. Yes, you but do. Was it, was it something specific you went in for? No. Or just I, Last Vogel thought you were I someone who should meet him? I was just – I thought he was the most marvelous, thrilling numbers that I – that the thrilling songs mm-hmm. that I could – and Abe Last Vogel said, I think you should go to Mark Blitzstein. He's kind of weird like you are, which hurt my feelings terribly. <laughs> Uh, but I did – it was a song called uh, I'm Simply Throught About You. And it was a girl uh, who was young and didn't know who she was yet, perfect for me. And she she did everybody on Broadway very well. So I did Be- Beatrice Lilly, Gertrude Lawrence, Ethel Merman, uh, uh, Oh, uh, everybody that was big on uh, – I did, even did Uta Hagen for him. And how did you develop – I was he, struck last night he, by your impersonations. How did you develop doing these impersonations? Was that something you developed for that show or you would already been doing this to entertain your friends? Uh, no, no. I, I, my friends didn't know who these people were. No, at, at Bennington, I was de- developing it. Uh, some of the girls knew. We had Puff Harriman up there. She enjoyed me. Puff Harriman was Avril Harriman's daughter, and he said that Puff uh, majored in skiing. And the the uh, we had um, oh boy, we had wonderful people up there. The girls. Oh, the Hepburn sisters were there. Marion and Peggy. They were her younger sisters, and they oh. The, uh, uh, Peggy was the beautiful, beautiful girl. It looked exactly like Catherine. As Noel Coward said, God shot at 
got sh- God shot at Peggy and missed and got Catherine instead. <laughs> <laughs> well, as, as Howard uh, just said, I was also impressed by both your impersonations and also you as almost a stand-up comic. I was not expecting an evening of comedy, and I was so delighted that uh, as you were telling your anecdotes, you did it in such a humorous way with such wonderful comic timing. Oh, as, thank you. You know, as an actress in a role... Certainly, I've admired your work for years, but now this is another area I hadn't known about Carol Channing. I didn't know it was funny until was. until I hit an audience, <laughs> and all of a sudden they started laughing at everything I was saying. I really didn't know it was funny. I told them the dead on truth, exactly what happened. Well, you've told some very humorous anecdotes about Sophie Tucker, and particularly Tallulah Bankhead and some others that you yes, worked with over the years. Yes, my lifelong friends. Yeah. Wasn't I fortunate? If you are fortunate enough to have three smash broad musicals. I was in a play called, uh, well, it was during the war, uh, World War II, and uh, I was in a play, and we all died in the end, like Journey's End. All -hmm. the girls, we all died. So it was a stock tragedy. But people thought it was funny. I mean, I I think that's interesting. I think if you see life as humorous, uh, you can't stop it. Do you see life as humorous? Yes, I do. I think it's the only way that we can get through it. You know, <laughs> uh, no matter what, ha- if you can laugh at it, you've conquered the fear halfway. The other thought I had last night I was, as I was watching you, and you make no um, no secret of the fact that you're in your 80s, you're 84 now, and... Well, it's obvious. (laughs) Well, everybody knows anyway. But no, it's not as obvious because watching you up on stage with your energy level, you reminded me of the Energizer Bunny. Oh, no. You just keep on going. You did some wonderful material. You were doing high kicks in the air. You were doing little bumps and grinds. I mean... It was wonderful. You know, I am. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I'm not aware of this. So many people ask me, where do you get your energy? I don't see it. Well, where, well, where do you? Is it just healthy <laughs> living or is it in the no, genes? No, it's just or normal for all of us, I thought. I, I thought I fit right in. <laughs> you know, I mean, none of, no, one, no one of us sees himself. And the funny thing is when you finally do see yourself, like on television and they run it off, or, or in a movie, uh, when you finally do see it, if you're aware of it, it's phony. Well, you made the point also along the same line of saying that you performed in Hello, Dolly! over 5,000 times between Broadway yes. and touring companies and all that. Yes. Never once missed a performance. No. Never. Where do you get that ability to be healthy, number one, and have the energy to go on night after night and do all these shows? The energy. Uh, you don't. It's adrenaline. Uh-huh. That's what it is. Adrenaline will get you anywhere. So it like turns on when the curtain goes up? Yes. That sort of thing? Uh-huh. Yes. First of all, sheer panic is the best. <laughs> That's the one. Yeah. This may be the audience that doesn't get it. They don't understand it. They don't see how monumental this character is. And fortunately, I never played anything but a character that I thought was monumental. But then that's the way actors do. When you when you get the part, you think, "Oh my gosh, this character is monumental," mm. you know. And but uh, uh, no, it, 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 the energy for it, eight shows a week isn't easy, especially when you do interviews in between. Like and, this, yes, <laughs> like this. I mean, this. It, uh, but uh, no, but you're so genuinely interested. It's it's heaven. Well, to I talk should point to out you. to our listeners that you did a show last night that ended after 10 p.m. 
We started this interview today at 10 o'clock in the morning. You have just come from a previous interview. Yes. <laughs> so yes. obviously you have some energy built in. No, that's show business. If you don't like being a barker in the circus, then you better get out of get it. Get out of the business. Because I think letting people know you're there and know what you're doing and know you're in town is part of it. I mean, it, uh, some people say, oh, well, I, I can't do that. I'm, I, I mean, I, it takes away from my show, and they're very artistic about the whole thing. I'm sorry. It's part of being an actor, and I love it. As you talk about taking away from the show, it struck me that you're doing a show where you're talking about your life, and then we ask you to come here and talk more about your life. How did you decide – how did you put this show together? How did you decide what – parts of your life you wanted to talk about? Often the audience calls out to me to do something. Last night I forgot to, uh, to do Hello, Dolly. Now, you can't believe that, I know, but I forgot. I forgot to do Hello, Dolly. So finally somebody yelled at me, Dolly, sing Hello, Dolly. But how much of the show is you're picking up stories and the show may vary from night to night? It does. Or, so, so it really is a case of where, where your thoughts go and what you remember and what you choose to tell. It's not, and now I'm going to tell this story and now I'm going to tell this story. I follow the audience. Hmm. I just follow them. Sometimes they're laughers. And, and last night it was raining cats and dogs, the periphery of the hurricane. And it isn't New York weather at all, is it? I mean, this is something that happened from the hurricane. So it it da- uh, uh, rain downs an audience very often during the elevator strike. It, that people have no energy, so you just make it more serious or make it make it funny if they're happy. Well, I, I noticed during the show you were making eye contact with individual members of the audience, yeah. and one woman yelled out, "I'm ninety years old." Oh, wasn't she <laughs> cute? Her. She was. Absolutely. She was adorable, and she didn't look it. She no, she didn't. No, and she followed. And at the end, she waved goodbye to me. <laughs> Is that and cute? I said, so therefore, good night. You know, after the encore, and she waved. And oh, I thought she was. I wonder who she was. Having she the looked very elegant. <laughs> she did. Probably Grandmother Tishman or something <laughs> of New York. <laughs> well, you talked about your first auditions. I'd like oh. to talk a little about getting and creating your first major role, that of Lorelai Lee. Yeah. How did that come to be? Where? How did you get that opportunity? I was in a little review uh, done by... Uh, Charles Gaynor, nobody knows who he is now, but he was brilliant. He wrote the song, the words, the music, and the comedy sketches. And this was Lendonier? Lendonier, and then Stein and Glickman came in and wrote special sketches for me because, and they're alive today. We fall on each other when we see each other. It was their beginning and mine. And, uh... This was oh dear, it was funny. The the thing. And we should make clear that's Joseph Stein, yes. not Julie Stein. Who and Joseph Stein? Who's Joseph Stein and who wrote Julie Fiddler Stein on the Roof. Julie Stein is S T Y N E, and St- this is S T E I N. Right. And Glickman, and they wrote funny things for me because Joshua Logan, the great director producer, he had a monopoly on Broadway for quite a few years. Josh Logan saw this little review in Los Angeles at the little bitty Las Palmas Theater, bought it for $30,000. He said, you can't afford me as a director, so I will bring it to New York, and he bought it for $30,000 and selected the members of the company that he wanted to come to New York and left some of them, and which broke our hearts. 
but but he didn't think that would work. Anyway, he brought us to New York, and he augmented my parts. He bought from Stein and Glickman three more sketches, and I, I did them, and it was just wonderful for me. Then then Al Hirschfeld did a cartoon of me in the Gladiola Girl, and I had no idea it was such a funny character until Al Hirschfeld did his cartoon. And I thought, oh, what a funny character. She thought she was so little and so cute, and she was the cutest little baby flapper of the 20s. And I was six feet tall or maybe more in heels. But she thought she was so adorable. And he did it so that she thought she was the prettiest. And they've been out on the road for years, and they just turned up tonight. They, they were lost, the Lost Road Company, it was called. And they finally worked their way back to New York, and then we'd come out. And all the other girls came up to my shoulder. And Al Hirschfeld did a cartoon only of me. Can you imagine at that time? It was, it, I couldn't believe it. And the rest of the company thought, what is she doing that he picked her? He picked me out. And he put it in the New York Times right on the Arts and Leisure front page on the Sunday. And it just, everybody came down to see who this, this, uh, 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 no card said I was a, a, a stupid, a, 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 a clumsy ox. The clumsy ox wouldn't, you know, and, and. It, I, it wasn't. I wasn't a clumsy ox. What I was was in this character that she didn't know she wasn't that little and cute. And so that's brought attention. Anita Luce came. She dragged Julie Stein down there. She brought uh, Leo Robin down and said, there's my Laurel Ali. That's my gentleman prefer blonde. She's the blonde. She said, Broadway is attuned to satire. And, she, and then she said, there are two ways of doing gentlemen prefer blondes. Oddly enough, I was four years old, and my grandmother and I used to go to all the movies. We went to everything. And I saw gentlemen prefer blondes with Ruth Taylor. And it was done quite seriously, the way Marilyn Monroe did it. Quite seriously. But, but she, the, the original diary of Lorelai Lee was hilarious. She just she didn't know she was... She just, well, anyway, it was exactly Lorelai Lee. Now, who, who in real life was Lorelai Lee? For our Nobody. So oh, well, made, I'll tell you who she was in real up. life. She was what all of Europe thought of Amer- us Americans. Uh-huh. Like, she was, she was uh, uh, un- un- uneducated. She was sweet. She uh-huh. was disarming. She was adorable and a gangster all at the same time. <laughs> Like, and that's what they thought of Americans. Like like, like cowboys in Lorelei Lee. That's the yeah. impression. Huh? Lorelei Lee. But that was, she wasn't a cowboy. But no, no, she no. was a Manhattan baby doll. The, she was the Broadway baby of all. Uh, she became that. She was a barefoot bumpkin from the foot of the Ozarks, went to New York, manipulated men like the president of General Motors, and uh, brought virginity to every man she met and... Uh, became one of the richest women in the world. She was the little girl from Little Rock who knew how to get diamonds from those gentlemen. That's right, and she <laughs> did. She got diamonds. She believed in them, and that's all she knew. She just didn't know anymore, and she was as sweet as could be, but a gangster. You said something interesting that I wanted to just clarify. You made a comment that uh, Marilyn Monroe played the role seriously. Yes. 
how do you mean that in relation to how you played the Well, role? she was the cutest, prettiest, littlest girl in, in town. She was the adorable one. I wasn't. But I know how... I, I, I thought it was a. I thought it was funny, adorable, and I loved how cute, pretty girls f- thought and acted, and how they treated men, and how. And I'd watch them and see that they, oh, the, and and their their sex appeal and everything, and the sweetness of them is beguiling and uh, not true. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're know, spoiled in a way. It's interesting because you you sort of talk these these characters. You talk about the the girl in the sketch who thought she was beautiful, you know, and so she acted, and she was really from a tired old road company. And yeah. in this case, so how much do these parts? And I really want to ask the same about Dolly. How much do you become the character, or how much does the character become you? Well, that's my business. I do characters. I don't sing like. Maria Callas. I don't, you know, I don't, and I'm not a lyric soprano, all that. Uh, uh, and I don't, I, I don't, but I do characters. That's my racket, <laughs> you know? So, so, so how. So much... I just stayed in character for Lorelei Lee. This is no part of her as me. So, but I do, ad- I adore. I, I, it was a character. You, everybody laughed at Lorelei Lee at the original diary. Some people said that Anita Luce's original diary that she wrote of Lorelei writing her diary, and here I am. People said I couldn't write a book, but I've written all the way across two whole pages, and they said I couldn't write a book. And everything is misspelled. Everything is... <clears throat> So to show the misspelling, I had to say, Daddy, you're going to leave me all alone on this cruise, all alone out on the great big ocean? To, to her, and Boston, she would say. She came from Boston, she was going to. And but she, to her, everybody was mispronouncing everything, and she was going to be very accurate about it. And she just a semi-idiot. You see, but she knew how to become one of the richest women in the world. (laughs) So she wasn't as much of an idiot as uh, she would have people believe. (laughs) Well, if you call that brilliant, uh, I have found out at my age the least important thing is money. (laughs) Mm. Although it it helps. (laughs) Oh, it sure helps. Uh, 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 a certain amount of money, but every wealthy family I've ever run into, there's a terrible tragedy in the midst of it. The children are, they are used to wealth, and they don't, they don't respect their parents. They don't, they, they don't hang together as a family. The real things in life are not there. They, they're spoiled. They're just, they think life is just a breeze. And why do my parents correct me on things? They have no right to do that. You know, it's it, oh boy, they fall apart fast with too much money. Mm-hmm. The unhappiest people I've ever met are the wealthiest. So, coming off of the success of Blondes, yeah. there were you. You next went into Wonderful Town. You replaced it was Rosalind a success. Russell. It really yeah, was, yeah. and we toured all over with it. Yeah. yeah, yeah so I'm you sorry. toured after you were on Broadway. First, you toured with Blondes. If a show is enough of a hit on Broadway, you can tour with it. Otherwise, right. you can't tour with it. It has to be well known. And we, I landed on the cover of Time at that time, and the week before. Oh, I believe, I think Mussolini was on the cover of Time. They didn't ever have actors on it, ever. And 
uh, the week after it was Madame Chiang Kai-shek. So you were an interesting company, to say the least. Interesting company, yes. But they only used political figures. Uh, great sportsmen like Donald Budge was on it. You know, the great tennis player. Or well, anyway, they that was they never put an actor on. And it was, oh, that, that was, well, it's because the character, the honest truth is, was monumental, as I say. Lorelei Lee was all of us Americans in one great character that Anita wrote to the rest of the world. Also, their jealousies. The rest of the world is jealous of the United States, or was then. Hmm. So, wonderful town, then you played the... The role of Ruth Sherwood. Oh, Ruth Sherwood was a female Mark Twain. She <laughs> captured the Middle West for all time. Ruth Sherwood, that was the hardest part I ever did. Shirley Booth played it before I did as a play. Uh -huh. She was brilliant in it. And she said, I knew her. So she said, you know something, Carol? It comes slowly. I said, boy, I can't get this. How do you do a musical version of Ruth, Ruth McKinney wrote it? Right. Ruth McKinney was a, oh, she captured the Middle West for all time. Okay, growing up there, uh, how do you, this was an introverted girl who could only express herself on the printed page. She totally could not, but her sister was my sister Eileen. Sure. And Eileen was open to the world. She was just a, a darling, exciting personality. But Ruth Sherwood could only express her thoughts on the printed page and her feelings. How do you show that in a musical? How do you... Do, and so I, I, uh, Claudia Cassidy was the meanest critic in Chicago at the time, and she said Rosalind Russell played her for intelligence and brilliant, a, a, a brilliant, canny woman, but Carol plays her for genius. And I, it's, she's stumbling all over her own feet. That's what she said. And I called Claudia Cassidy. I didn't know it was just before she died. Something told me. I, I was going through Chicago, and I called her at her hotel, and I said, Miss Cassidy, I want you to know that because you have been so cruel and careful and selective about what is a good show, what, that, who comes through. She said, I won't put up with these cheap substitutes that they get in hit shows. She, she wouldn't put up with that because she, she raised the level of touring shows all over the United States. They had to keep the original in the part. They had to keep the New York cast. She wouldn't put up with it. And if Claudia Cassidy panned it, they couldn't make money on, on the rest of the tour. And if she went all out for it, that they had a very successful tour. And I said, I want to thank you, Miss Cassidy. You've raised the level. People, Many people don't know that this is not a good show. Many people say, oh, well, that must be what it was. But she did. She, oh, I'm, I look, I'm sounding like I'm patting myself on the back. I didn't mean to sound that way. But she gave it. It's it's wonderful run, it's tour, and she died only two weeks after I called her, and I thought, oh, thank you, whatever told me to call her and tell her what a great piece of work she had done for the whole of the United States for live theater. At the 
beginning of our conversation, just changing the subject, yes. I mentioned the name Dolly Levi, Dolly Gallagher Levi, and Jerry Herman, responsible for the music for that show. Yes. Tell us how you got involved with Hello, Dolly, how, how you got to be cast as Dolly. Mr. Merrick. David Merrick. I could, well, yes, David Merrick. I could never call him David Mr. because he's the almighty, all-powerful Mr. Merrick to me. He was probably the most powerful producer of his day. I think so. He had a monopoly on Broadway. Mm-hmm. And, yes, the most powerful, and for a reason, he was canny. He thought of taking Hello, Dolly, I mean, yes, taking it out with the original cast, that's, oh, they were a great cast, on tour while it was still a smash hit on Broadway and not running downhill. And so while it was still, it was a privilege for... Uh, Lubbock, Texas, to get Hello, Dolly. It was a privilege for St. Louis to get it while it was still talked about and while it was still news. And so we all went on tour, and he took us out of New York. He put other people in, in, in those parts and never changed the marquee. Well, there was no rule against it because nobody ever thought of such a dastardly thing to do. They, they couldn't, you know, she, you could get arrested for that now, but but nobody ever thought of such a thing. And he thought of it. And I, so he opened right away in Los Angeles. He had Gower Champion right there, Jerry Herman right there, seeing to it that we stayed just as fresh as we were. And we opened in Los Angeles. People slept on mattresses outside the box office trying to get tickets. They bring a mattress there and and get up to the box and, and, and sleep there all night so they could be the first in line. And I remember how hard it was to get tickets. The The scalpers were making a mint on Hello, Dolly. It was, it was well, it was an unusually... David Merrick was, was designing the whole tour. He was marvelous. He put us in... Rodeo grounds, it was so hard. We played in Oklahoma City to 7,500 people in Oklahoma City where they had this huge auditorium, and he made up his mind he was going to break the world's indoor record for shows, and he did, and we hit the headlines in variety and all that. You you raise an interesting thing as you talk about both going out on tour with uh, Blondes and going out on tour with Dolly. In the old days, yep. forgive the expression, that's right. no, it was that's very it. common and even expected of the original stars to go out and tour with yes, the show after they'd played the Broadway season. That's right. We don't see that much anymore. What's, what's your reaction to, to that? Because television and uh, electronics have made it so they don't have to go on tour. Uh, movies, nobody, it's not necessary. Uh, uh, it was necessary in those days. Because they didn't know who the, the Alfred Lunt and Lynn Fontaine, and they said, "You must play the provinces when you owe it to a show. If you have, if your show is enough of a hit, love, you must play." And Lynn Fontaine, I was privileged to know them. They, they, we became friends, and they would come and see the show, and it was the honor of my life. I thought. Hmm. Well. Backing up just a bit, yeah. Hello, Dolly opened on Broadway in 1964. 
How did you get involved? Ethel Merman had turned down the part. Oh, you're right. I it's, forgot yeah, to yeah, answer yeah. your question. So how did, how did Carol Chang yes, get Yes, I didn't know this. Mr. Merrick never told me. Uh-huh. He never told me that Ethel Merman turned down the part. Jerry Herman never told me. Mr. Merrick came to me before he ever had Hello, Dolly. He said, I'm going to find a show for you. Oh, he came to uh, Minneapolis... St. Paul. There's a huge auditorium there, and I was doing a show I did in London, Carol Channing and her Ten Stout-Hearted Men. And I was doing it there. We brought it in, and the Ten Stout-Hearted Men, and we were doing it there, and Mr. Merrick came and saw the show, and I said, well, you." Ha-, he came backstage and said, I'm going to find a Broadway show for you if it's the last thing I do. And uh, so I said, oh, fine. Um, uh, I can't Oh, he said, I'm going to get Gower Champion. Well, that he had directed Lendonier before that. That was my first little review. And uh, uh, he said, uh, I'm going to get Gower Champion, and I'm going to... Oh, anyway, he had it all planned. But Jerry wrote Hello, Dolly! for Ethel Merman. He wrote the w- words and music, and I never knew that. They just let me go ahead and think that that was the one, the show that Mr. Merrick wanted. And Mr. Merrick said, this is ridiculous. Gower said, I can't, no, Carol can't do this, because I, I did nine different characters in Linden Year, but I wasn't doing anything like Dolly. And th- that's what I do, you see. Like, I don't know, lots of people do that. But anyway, so uh, uh, Gower said, no, she can't do Dolly. That's it. She can't do that. So Ethel, I, she was a friend of mine, by now because Al Hirschfeld cartooned me so everybody came down to see uh-huh. and so Ethel said yeah I turned that show down you know yeah yeah I don't know I didn't I know but I turned that down I didn't think it would work so uh, uh, anyway um, she was a good friend she was a wonderful woman and a loyal friend but anyway um, as I told you she said well never mind in the show last night but You've got to keep me on the track. You want to know how I... Mr. Merrick organized it for me. But the rest of the company, Gower Champion and Jerry Herman and everybody else involved, uh, all said, no, 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 uh, Carol couldn't do this. She couldn't do this part. And I was crazy about it. I thought, if I don't do it, I'll jump out the window. And I just kept... uh, Mr. Merrick knew that. And so I, I said, look, let me audition for Gower. Let me audition for Gower Champion, the director choreographer. And I, I, so Mr. Merrick said, all right. So we went where Oliver was playing across the street from Mr. Merrick's office on 44th Street. And we, we, the set for Oliver was all around me. And I, I did the manure speech. Money, you should pardon the expression, is like manure. It's not worth a thing unless it's spread around. That's the gist of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So I did the manure speech and uh, for Gower. And Mr. Merrick walked behind me as though he was going over to stage right from stage left. He walked behind me and said, this is ridiculous. He, I know you can do it. I know very well. It's just utterly ridiculous. And he would, but then he went out and he was a sly fox in the blackened theater. And he sat there in that, that no light on on the audience. And he sat there waiting for God. So I did the manure speech and I did other speeches and I did what I thought she would sing. And uh, Gower went up, he went up to the last balcony 
to to listen. And then he went down to the mezzanine, and then he came down to the where the brass bar rail is, where the orchestra pit is, and he walked all over the theater, and then he said. I buy that. He put his finger in the air, I'll never forget. And he said, I buy that. He wanted Nanette Fabre in the part. Mm-hmm. And I, Nanny's my good friend. And she says, oh, no, Carol, I, you, you should have had it. Oh, she's a good friend. She's wonderful. I couldn't have been that nice to somebody that took my part. But anyway, so uh, she, uh, uh, you know, she was on the show of shows. Right, sure. Brilliant talent. So... Anyway, he said, I buy that, and we went to work, and we started talking. And at Bennington, I learned that there is Richard Boleslavsky Boleslavsky and Konstantin Stanislavsky. Um, I I won the Konstantin Stanislavsky medal in Russia. They, They sent it to me. It was I, 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 it was the honor. Oh, well, anyway, I'll never get over it. It's, it's stolen now. Everything's stolen. But uh, the, the, the um, uh, Gower and I went to work. We went through rough waters together. Gower and I stood close together we, like the rudder on a ship. And it would almost sink, and, and then it would go, and it would go in a storm. A ship almost sinks, but we stood together on the, like a rudder. And by gosh, we even had to. Mr. Merrick said, "I don't like what you're doing, Carol." And and uh, Gower said, "All right, then I'll buy the show from you. How much money have you got, Carol?" Well, of course, I didn't have any money. So and and he went on, and he got money from the Champion Five. And Mr. Merrick came back like a good little schoolboy and kept the show. And then Gower moved, and, and I wrote him notes. I feel I'm losing. Anyway, I found the spine with the Stanislavski method, and that is he wrote down for all time for actors to find out what the spine of their part is all about. Very often, the playwright does not know what the spine is of his own play. Thornton Wilder wrote the original Matchmaker. That's what Hello, Dolly! was based on. Thornton Wilder is one of our great playwrights, American playwrights, and we well, you know that, and your listeners know that, so I don't have to explain. But Thornton Wilder wrote a comedy, and it's a wonderful comedy, and it's a, it's a, a type of New Yorker, and Dolly probably lived under the Third Avenue well and, and, and had to, grew up yelling her lungs out, you know, and I could see where Ethel Merman could play it, but it was my version of Dolly. I so you've got to keep me on the track. Mm-hmm. I get off it. Uh, you asked me how did it happen? Right. Mr. Merrick made Gower sit down and watch that audition. Then he made Jerry Herman and and Jerry said, "Now we want to find your key and we want to find the key Dolly sings in." Well, it key got it lower and lower and lower. And Phil Lang did the orchestrations. He said, "My flutes won't go down that far." Jerry said, "I don't care." This is the way I conceived it. Now, nobody conceives of his song being sung by my voice. They just don't. That's not the w- where they feel. The- and he said, my flutes don't. And he said, then use oboes. Mm-hmm. Use bass 
cellos, you know, all that sort of thing. And, oh, gosh, use trumpets, Jerry said. And he acted like he always conceived it that way. He was wonderful to me. Jerry was, and, and everybody said, they wouldn't pay any attention to Jerry either because he was so young. So I made him, I said, oh, he's not so young. He's 35 years old. He was in his 20s. And, and he was, and, and I lied for him. And now he's stuck with how old he is. <laughs> but but now I'm off the subject. Well, when, when, when Jerry was here, about a year ago, Jerry Herman was on this program. We were yes. talking about Hello, Dolly. Yes. Jerry said to us that he never really wrote with a person in mind. He wrote for character, not for the performer. And then he would adapt the songs, if necessary, to the Did person he? who was performing. Yeah, he said that. I he had said, the impression you wrote it for Ethel Well, he, No, he had in mind that Merman was going to do it. Ah. But then when she turned it down... Yeah. He didn't have anybody in mind, so he continued writing it, just writing it at that point. He said there's only one song that he's ever written for a person, not for character, and that was for you, Parade Passes By. Uh, before yes, the Parade he Passes did. By, he said you were in tryouts in Detroit, yes. needed a song, yes. and he wrote that with Carol Channing's voice, your personality in mind. That's oh. the only song he wrote for a person, not for a character. That's the song he wrote later after we were open and we were playing in Detroit. Right. And then we went to Washington. Right. And he was in the Willard Hotel and he said, come on up here and let me, you want to listen to this? Oh, it was, I guess he told you about it. It was in Detroit. Uh, and yeah, he, he woke me up in the middle of the night. He, he, he didn't say that. Oh, he didn't. Well, it was he, the middle of the night. Uh, and he said, Carol, can I? Uh, uh, the phone rang and he said, can you get up here? So uh, I said, certainly. And I flew through the hotel. In those days, they didn't leave those robes they leave now in the hotels. <laughs> and so I had a flannel nightgown on and flew through. And I, thank goodness, didn't meet anybody in the elevator and <laughs> got into Jerry's room and he he played before the parade passes by. I'm doing it in the show now. Dolly was widowed. She was frightened. She was uh, lonely. And she talks more and more to her dead husband, Ephraim. And that's what made him write Parade Passes By. Boy, we had trouble getting that show together. And once he saw it, that's true, and he's, he was good enough to say, I want you to hear this first. I think I've just finished it. It was four in the morning. Wow. And I, he said, I think, and it was worth it. I, it was a matinee day and everything. I didn't care. I was so happy about that. For, before the then he called Gower. Gower flew down with the with his bathrobe on and nothing else. In and the middle of the night, also. In the middle of the night, after once I said, Jerry, that's the essence of Dolly. She's that's the, the spine to Dolly was. To, it has to be a verb, uh, according to Stanislavski. The spine was to rejoin the human race. And it has to include every character in the show. It has to include Cornelius and, and, and Barnaby in that basement. They never get out of it. She's going to get them out of that basement, Dolly Levi is, and they're going to rejoin the human race. She's going to get Mrs. Malloy out of that hat shop, and she's going to rejoin the human race. And Dolly's going to stop talking to her dead husband and rejoin the human race. Basically, it's quite tragic, but 
Once you got it together, it was very funny. And she's going to marry Horace Vandergelder for his money. And he was the richest and therefore the meanest man in, in Yonkers. And Horace Vandergelder called himself the richest and therefore the meanest man in Yonkers. And uh, he became, you know that when Dolly marries him, she's she's the biggest Hadassah leader in the whole. You know, she's going to make him the mayor of the town and he's going to be beloved. You know, you just know that's coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a Thornton. I asked; he was alive at the time, and I asked Thornton Wilder, "Is this possibly the spine?" He said, "My gosh, I don't know what the spine of of the matchmaker is, but that's it." He said, "I think that's it." Well, that's why one critic said Gower Champion's production number of Hello Dolly could be. The greatest production number in the history of Broadway musicals because most production numbers are calisthenics, brilliant calisthenics, wonderful, thrilling calisthenics. But he followed the plot line. He followed. We covered, Thornton Wilder said, my gosh, you covered pages of dialogue. Gower did with that one production number. She starts out coming back to the Harmonia Gardens. It's her first time back into life again. She stops sitting on the edge of the bed talking to her dead husband. She comes down the stairs where she used to be with her husband into the Harmonia Gardens. The boys are glad to see her. It builds. Gower went to halftime. Now, it starts out with, hello, Dolly, well, hello. And then he went to halftime. Bam, bam, bam. Dum, da, da. She's making it. She's getting there. She's going to get, rejoin the human race. Da, da. And he gave us a runway. And we go down the runway with those 12 brilliant dancers behind me. I said, can't you put at least little bitty Johnny Minio in front of me so that I don't fall off the runway? He said, no, good dancers is too hard to find. Well, you made the point in the, your show at, at, at uh, Feinstein's that you're nearsighted. You... Yeah, off the stage. Well, yeah, I once. kept falling <laughs> off the runway, but nobody cared. So anyway, so uh, and Jerry Herman came back and said, "Can you do that every night? It's brilliant when you fall off the runway." <laughs> so anyway, so uh, uh, he would. Uh, oh, I forget where I was. Uh, uh, and he built it. Oh, then he went half half time. So she's making it. She's beginning to get it. The boys are following behind her. She's got Mrs. Malloy. She's got those two boys. She's got Vandergelder. She's getting the whole cast together. And they're going to make it to the pot at the end of the rainbow. And he went half time. Boom, boom, boom. Um, ba-dum, da-da-dee. It's a burlesque beat. Da-dum, da-dum, bang, bang. Bang, with that burlesque beat, she makes it to the pot at the end of the rainbow. And Thornton Wilder said, why didn't I think of that? It didn't, I didn't have to go through all that dialogue. He did it in one number. And this critic, that he thought it was the most brilliant because it followed the plot line. I'm so... I, I, that Richard, that Stan, uh, Constantine Stanislavski knew what he was doing. <laughs> 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 moving, moving off of Dolly, um, I noticed in some uh, advanced press material on your show, and you've already talked about the fact that your your one woman show varies from night to night. But I noticed that you you intended to talk some about your friend Mary Martin, and of course that brings us to. 
a oh, much talked about show. Night, Tuesday. We, we didn't hear you talk about Mary Martin last night. Oh, so I'm curious I know. because Somebody it certainly brings Mary us. Martin. Well, it brings us to what was a difficult experience in your career, but much written and talked about, namely Legends. Which oh, were... it was beautiful with Mary. We held hands through the whole thing. Hmm. Uh, uh, Yes, I know. Well, Mary and I decided she, I just, we got along very well. You know how it's the principle of, of, of initiations. When everything is going wrong around you and you hang on to one person for the initiation, you we held hands and we hung on to one another, you get, it, it's it's friends for life. You're just, I was there when she died and, and. Uh, I, I, I was right with her all the way. It, it cements a relationship when it's go, when you go through hell together. And this producer was oh. Anyway, he used to order new furniture every week on the stage because he was furnishing his apartment in New York. <laughs> and he'd use all our furniture, you see. And then you sit down and the chair hits you in a different place and the sofa doesn't is higher than you thought and all that. Well, anyway, so you just... Mary, I knew her anyway, and she called him and said, you want to do this? And she has a, a Weatherford, Texas accent. And she, uh, we decided, let's learn our lines together. So she had a place in Palms, it was Rancho Mirage. And she said, come on, I'll get you a place. And she was, was fortunate. She got me a place right across the road from her. Uh, and it uh, uh, wasn't right across. I had to bicycle to her every day. And we decided to learn our lines. And we'd say, now, look, we're going to make a rule. We're not going to talk to anybody. We're going to learn our lines. Okay, we're going to do that. I said to the housekeeper, I'll dismiss you. Now, I, we don't want anyone we can possibly talk to. Okay. Now, you take the dog with you. She'll start talking to the dog if you don't. Okay. So she, the housekeeper took the dog. So we worked. We started working. And then I said, did you know that Tallulah got arrested for uh, drunken driving? Oh, did Mary said that. Did you know Tallulah got arrested for drunken driving? I said, well, nobody's surprised about that. Well, she said she's in the Ohio jail. So I said, well, that's... Uh, so they had to... Now, look, I'm off the subject, but... Well, well, you're talking about Tallulah Bankhead being yeah. your, your, your close friend, so yeah, yeah. that that kind of it's relates. all right. But, but you're but you're talking about distractions that immediately you're trying to learn the show exactly. We learn four lines directions. and we'd start talking, <laughs> and we that's exactly it. And we learned four more lines and we'd start talking. Well, finally we got hungry, so I said, "All right, Mary, what's in the kitchen?" I don't know. I said, "Well, Mary, what what do you do to eat?" And she said. The housekeeper. Well, I dismissed the housekeeper. So I said, well, Mary, you've got to have some canned soup or something around. I don't know how. So, well, she didn't know how to open a can, and she didn't know how to heat up a can of soup. So I said, well, how do you eat the housekeeper? Well, finally she said, let's go to Morningside. Okay, so we went to Morningside, which is one of the golf clubs there, and we just signed the checks. <laughs> well... I said, Mary, I want to pay you back at, when we were on our way to the uh, to Los Angeles to break it in. Uh, I, w I want to pay you back. You, you paid for all those. And she said, I didn't. I thought you belonged to Morningside. <laughs> so I said, well, Mary, I don't belong to Morningside. 
what, she said, well, the waiter handed me a thing to sign. I signed it. So we ate three meals a day at Morningside. I thought she was paying it. She thought I was paying it, and we went, so they're looking for us. I said, Mary, they're looking for us. We can't open here at, in Los Angeles. Well, to this day, I'm scared to go to Morningside because I know they're looking for us. Mary's gone. And, and nobody ever caught up to you? Nobody sent they you the They never caught up. We ate all the time we were learning our lines. And, well, anyway, that's Mary, and we... Really, she's good to work with. She's she was wonderful. We, we she was like George Burns. George Burns was wonderful. Well, I'm off the subject again. Well, but you've got so much to talk about, and unfortunately, we're we're going to run out of time shortly. I want to ask just a small last thing about Legends, which is Legends is now reportedly coming back yes. with with Joan Collins and, and Linda I think Evans. She's perfect. So so Joan Collins is supposed to play your part. Or, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm the the bitchy part. It was fun to be bitchy to Mary Martin. It was really fun because you know how dear she is, and she's sweet, and she's always sweet, and she never seems to criticize anybody. So I was rotten mean to her, and that was fun. I mean, she knew how I loved her. She had, do you know, there was a rainbow. Uh, we as we were learning. No, it was after the tour. It was over a year that we toured and decided, don't let's not bring this fiasco into New York. So we didn't. But we, the, uh, she was in bed. I called her every day, and finally, she, her secretary called and said, "Mary, would you please get down here as, as fast as you can?" I did. She was going. The doctor was outside, and he said, "Go in, but don't stay long because." She's go, Mary's going. It was cancer, and oh. she never mentioned it. Never. She never missed oh. a show. Same thing with me. I had cancer. I never missed a show. It, it, she, it's for selfish reasons. If you're in love with your job, it feeds you, and it heals you, and it takes the pain away. And after the show, you either feel better or you're healing. Well, she did the same thing, and. She, there she, so she was, and this rainbow formed on our hands. I said, Mary, everybody sends love. Helen Hayes sends love. I know I'm dropping names, but she sends her love to you. And she, we were holding hands, and the rainbow landed on our hands. Then I looked at the rainbow. It was coming through the window. It never came through when we were learning our lines. It moved on up to where the cancer was on the liver, and it moved up, and then it kept moving, and I, finally it landed, and it was on her chest, and then as it moved up, I said, Mary Martin, there's a rainbow on you. There's a rainbow on you, and she seemed so calm and so young. There wasn't a line on her face, and she was so, and she was calm, and she said, she seemed to know. She couldn't talk. The doctor said, she's in a coma. She won't hear you. I said, Helen Hayes sends love, and other people send love. I can't remember. And I, and I love you. Everybody loves you, Mary. And she squeezed my hand. She heard every word I said. She squeezed my hand, and it went up to her forehead, and it stayed there. And I said, Mary Martin, there's a rainbow. And she just stayed there smiling easily. And the doctor said, you've got to go. You've been there three quarters of an hour. You cannot stay any longer. It's too hard on her. She left. I went across to, uh, I went away. Her secretary called and said, Mary's gone. And you know, you know how we knew she was gone? The rainbow went away. 
Now, isn't that the strangest thing? I asked Dr. Bill Cahan, the head of Sloan Kettering Cancer Hospital here in New York, I said, what was that, Bill? What was that, Dr. Bill? And he said, it happens often when people are dying. Sometimes the whole bed lights up. Sometimes it's just a rainbow. I thought, who could it be? It's somebody. It could be her husband. Uh, it could. What, what could it be? What is this strange light that comes over her face that makes her so young and so beautiful? And he said, no, that happens as people are going. I said, what is He said, it's a spirit. It's just a spirit. And I've never known what it is since. But when I go, she made a rainbow. I'm, she loved pastel colors, aqua, not turquoise, pink, not red, uh, gentle colors. When I go, I'm going to make an American flag, red, white, and blue. <laughs> That's what I plan. <laughs> <laughs> when, when Jerry Herman was here, he um, told about writing Hello, Dolly. Yeah. Starts off, Hello, Harry, his father. Yes. Well, Hello, Louis, his uncle Louis. Oh, really? You didn't know that? Oh, yeah. No, but no, he, I... He purposely picked those names. Harry being his father's well, Harry name. Harry Collegian, my husband, thinks he wrote it for him. Well, I was about to say there's a Harry in your life now. Yes, and whenever I say, hello, Harry, I, lean, I look toward where I think Harry might be sitting. Uh-huh. Well, tell us about Harry now. This is a very interesting story. He was 13, you were 12, you yes. were in school together. We formed each other. He was leader of the school band. I never got off the school auditorium stage. You were on the stage. He was in the orchestra pit. That's right. And and we worked together, and uh, he was uh, he was also our star soccer player, and we won the soccer medal for the whole state of California. And he was uh, he the governor gave him a, a medal for the broad jump, which is as I told you, mm-hmm. the broad they've changed it to the long jump on a kind of the unfortunate jokes they made about Harry and me. <laughs> well, anyway, we didn't know what it would lead to. He was so beautiful, we had no idea what it would lead to. In those days, children didn't know anything about sex. Well, Harry and you yeah. went to junior high school together, or school together. No, no, junior high. Junior high, Seventh right. junior and high, eighth right. grades. Then 70 years passed. You didn't see each other. Seventy years. Well, later. he had a beautiful sixty-year marriage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, he wouldn't. You see, he was drafted twice uh, for World War Two. Was that it, Harry? World War Two. Yes. And uh, oh, he's in the inside yeah. the. Har- window. Harry's watching through the window. Oh, he is. <laughs> in, in yes. The studio, yes. And for the Korean War, right? Yes. And we have caps at home. Korean War. He, uh-huh. We're very proud. Well, anyway, he was drafted twice, so that knocked him right out from his youth. But he made it anyway. He's, you know the Mervyn department stores? Yeah. Well, he's Mervyn's business partner. I wrote in my book, I thought, well, everybody writes about her first love. I, I better write about my first love. So I wrote about Harry. And uh, Mervyn... There is a Mervyn, yes, uh, was reading it on, on, a, on the plane. He said, my gosh, Harry Collegian. He said, Carol, he called me. I dropped the book right on the plane. I got off at Dallas-Fort Worth, called Harry and said, you've got to go see her. I've got her private number. I've got her number. It, go and see her. And so Harry said, oh, no, she wouldn't want to see me again. How he could think that? But anyway, because he haunted me all my life. Uh, and and uh, then... Uh, Harry called me, and I said, well, now, when can we see each other? And he said, tomorrow morning. 
So he drove through the night, it must have been, and he got there and came through my gate. Two weeks later, we were engaged, and we got married in Mervyn's house. Well, it took Harry 70 years, but once he got moving, he was a fast mover. Boy, was he. I thought, no wonder he's Mervyn's business partner. Mervyn said he's the most honest man I know. I think the world and all of him. Carol, please see him. Please see him. And, oh, he was. And so I said, of course I will. Well, I introduced you at the beginning of the program. I uh, neglected one uh, title that you have recently uh, achieved, Dr. Carol Channing. Doctor of Fine Arts. Doctorate. Yes, and I am going... Do you have time enough for Harry to explain them? No. Harry, will you get yourself... We only have two minutes left. Can you get in here? Because I don't understand the finances of the thing, but I'm going to give my soul to it. It's the the Channing Collegian Foundation for Promising Young... It's Doctor of Fine Arts. And how does it work, Harry? Oh, Harry, Harry, Harry has just walked in. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it's very simple... Uh, Carol is going to establish scholarships in every uh, university in California, State University, of which there are 23 campuses in California. And uh, she's going to perform and teach. They're giving you teaching credentials. And it's about the arts, bringing the arts, the focusing in the arts on our children, grammar school, high school, and university system. That's where it's got to go. California needs it. The whole country needs it. Texas is interested. Uh, Nevada's interested. And I'm sure New York would be interested because of all the arts in, in, uh, in this beautiful state. So it, it's, it's, it's a start. It'd probably take a generation or two, but we got to do it. But at my age, I want to pass on what I learned. Very few actors get to play one show over 5,000 times. What I learned and relearned and learned about keeping it fresh, about keeping it going, about making it new. And I want to pass it on to the younger generation and maybe the next generation. That's what you want to do at my age. A a performance is, is a magnetic experience at the moment. But this is going to help... Uh, I needed this. If I could have gotten what I know now about 3,000 or 5,000 performances and that I was fortunate enough to have hit shows, that if I could have got that way early in life, oh, boy, I would have had smooth, smoother sailing. Well, I, I made the analogy a while ago to you being the Energizer Bunny. Harry has on his shirt a, a bunny looks much like the Energizer Bunny. <laughs> it says, keep going. I stopped you before you finished <laughs> what's going to start, happen. And to start this new venture at See, this Van point. Van Clyburn has a foundation, but he takes the money and gives it to them. I'm giving my own money at, to whatever I've saved uh, to, uh, first off, I usually get ripped off by people. But whatever I'm making now, I'm giving my own to any of the... the uh, Universities. Universities. Right. And you, you explain it. That, well, I did. And yeah. uh, that's, that, I think that's what makes the difference. Yeah. I, I think we have to invest in the future of our kids. Our culture is dependent on the arts, and we're losing it. And I think we need to revive it and refocus on it. It's going to take a generation, I know, but it doesn't make any difference just as long as every all the artists in this country and around the world want to get involved. Oh, we got the place for you. I think that's a perfect sentiment to say Dr. Carol Channing right. yes. and Harry, too. Yes. Thank you so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Oh, you let me just r- rant on. Thank you. 
Thank you. This is the first time I've been able to unburden some to two people. <laughs> well, wonderful. Thank you oh. so much. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that is a wrap, and thank you. You're both doing noble work. I'm proud of you.